Welcome to All About Audio Podcast, where we discuss topics relevant to audio industry professionals. I'm your host, Sean Chapman. Each month, I will interview audio professionals to bring you tips and advice for working in audio or starting your own business. Last month, I sat down with Michael Tarzia of Sigma Sound Studios about keeping it simple and always using a reference track. Hey, Mike. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Cool. Really appreciate it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in the audio world? Well, I'm Mike Tarcia. I started out at Sigma Sound Studios. That was my father's business. He started in the early 60s in recording, and in 1968, he built Sigma and uh, Sigma became synonymous with the sound of Philadelphia. I went to a year of college at Villanova and decided I didn't want to uh, sit in a bar talking about philosophy, being a philosophy and English major. So I um, quit college, quit the university, and um, basically started out as a gopher and moved my way up to engineering and finally being the chief engineer of the uh, facility. In 2002, I left Sigma, and in 2003, I, I put together a studio in my house where I work out of now. Very cool. Can you talk about some of the records that you worked on that went on to achieve success like Grammys and Gold Status? Well, I, I started out in the 80s doing uh, dance music, so there weren't a lot of awards for that, but I worked with Jermaine Jackson. Um, uh, George Benson, Five Star, a lot of acts with Nick Martinelli, a um, dance remixer in the Philadelphia area. Uh, then I then I uh, work with Patti LaBelle. She went to L.A. and um, hated how her vocals were cut on the song New Attitude for Beverly Hills Cops. So I cut Patti on that, and that was the beginning of a... Um, 15, 16 year relationship. I wound up doing um, vocals and mixing on her Grammy winning album, Burning Album, which I believe 1991 won a Grammy. I worked with Vanessa Williams. I did the song Dreamin' that went to number eight pop. Uh, Barry White, Practice What You Preach, was his big comeback album. I spent a number of years working with Gerald Levert and um, did strings on Standing in the Shadow of Motown. So I have a couple dozen gold and platinum records and uh, three projects that wound up winning Grammys. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work with uh, Sigma Sound Studios? Well, basically at Sigma, I started out doing the dance remixing. And then in the mid 80s, Gerald Levert, the uh, son of Eddie Levert from the OJs, uh, was 18 years old. Uh, the OJ's manager thought that the kids were that he was talented and his and his brother was talented, Sean. Uh, they started a band called Levert, and I started working with them. And that was about a 10, 10, 12 year collaboration working with them, doing their albums, which most went gold or platinum, and then working with a myriad of other artists. So and um, and also after my work with Patty, I did four or five albums with her. So between those two clients, I was I was very busy. I mean, basically, those two clients kept me busy for the better part of a quarter of a century. So what is SPARS and what, what is your role in that? 
Well, Spars was the Society of Professional Audio Recording Studios, which then changed to services. But it was basically formed by uh, Mac Emmerman at Criteria, Chris Stone at the record plant, my father, uh, Howard, Howie Schwartz, Bob Lifton at Regent Sound. And the reason it was formed was because the advent of turnkey studios. Independent studios started because record labels had their own studios like Columbia and people were union. Musicians didn't want to stop working at six o'clock. So some engineers that were union engineers at label studios thought, oh, we'll build our own studios. So that's where a lot of the studios in New York came from were independents that formed their own studios. Hmm. These people built their consoles. They built the HVAC systems for the room. They built the rooms and did all the acoustical treatment. By the late 70s, you know, MCI had a console. You bought the console. You wired it up, and it was in. Acoustical designers were out. So anybody with money and the wherewithal could now get in the studio game. So what happened was there wound up being more studio time available than needed, and people dropped their rates in the studios. So the top studios in the United States decided we need to separate ourselves from these upstarts. You have to have two multi-track tape machines to be a member. And uh, they basically formed to uh, try to survive as long as they could with the new environment. Hmm. My father was the first president. And the reason he was the first president was Philadelphia is a tertiary market. And they didn't want any trouble between the studios in L.A. and New York. And they thought my father was the most non-confrontational person to be the first president of the organization. In 1998, I became president, which was two decades later. Can you tell me a little bit more about your father? Sure. Uh, My dad started out working at Philco, designing the uh, working on the team that put together the original barcoding and sidewinder missiles and things like that. And uh, he was working at Philco during the day. He repaired TVs at night, and he also went to Temple Night School. Uh, He got a phone call from a studio in South Philadelphia near where he lived to repair a a tape machine. And my dad loved jazz, J.J. Johnson and Philly Joe Jones and all those people. And he repaired the tape machine, and he got the bug So he started working at AMS Studios. Then he moved on to Cameo Parkway, where he worked with Chubby Checker. He did The Orleans Meet Me on South Street. He did um, Mashed Potato Time. Uh, He also did Expressway to Your Heart, which was Gamble and Huff's first big hit, White Band, The Soul Survivors. And through that relationship with Gamble and Huff, when... um, Alan Klein bought Cameo Parkway. My father left. He took a year or two off. And in 1968, he started Sigma Sound. And the rest is kind of history. We're in the, we're in the book, the, uh, the Temples of Sound, which named the top studios in the United States. And uh, we're one of those studios. We were one of those studios. Cool. 
So to switch topic a little bit here, um, what are some mixing tips uh, that maybe you wish that you would have known in, earlier in your career? Well, I learned with good people. So there weren't many. I mean, the first thing is you always need a sonic anchor. So having ref material up that you could A-B through a mix is maybe the most important thing that you can do. Hmm. Uh, anything else, I mean, really it was, you know, you know, mixing is an on-the-fly creative thing. My, my father used to always say, mixing is like the person that does the fine finishing on a house. You know, the construction is basically the tracking and everything. But when you get into all the, the crown molding and all the little accoutrements to building a home, that's kind of like what mixing is. I mix and master at the same time, which gets mastering oh, okay. engineers, which gets mastering engineers upset. But my <laughs> argument is this. And Frankfurt Wayne which did the first record that you could actually play two different program material on one side of the record, which was, um, oh God, what was the, uh, the comedy, comedy, the British comedy, that Life of Brian, Monty Python. It was a Monty Python album. And if you drop the needle on, dis on Groove One, it played one program. And if you dropped it on Groove Two, it played another. Oh, that's cool. So I had two separate tracks. It's like two separate tracks on one side. Oh, and wow. my point of mentioning this is that mastering to vinyl is an art. Mm -hmm. You're you're transcribing electrical energy to mechanical force, and you're dealing with the limitations of a physical medium of vinyl. Mastering today in the digital domain is like EQing your car radio to me. And it gets mastering engineers really upset. But to me, it's like, if I can take 112 tracks and make a mix, I can take that mix and get some basic EQ and master it. So uh, I usually go on mastering websites and people get mad at me. But the, the way I, their argument is it's a second set of ears. And my argument is I know what I want and I don't want anybody else to mess it up. <laughs> for me when i'm when i'm mixing and when i'm 90 percent done i throw in my mastering i can go inside my mix and adjust for the mastering artifacts that come with trying to get up to the levels that we want today so mm -hmm. i i work in a circular motion once 90 percent of my mix is in do you have a favorite piece of gear or plug-in Basically, uh, almost all my mixes use the uh, Waves Classic bundle with the Neve SSL and API stuff. And I also have uh, the Trident A-Range. And I would say for EQ and compression, that's 90% of what I use. And then I love the whole Sound Toys bundle. I mean, they have some really great stuff. Okay. I also have the Slate, uh, the, you know, the Slate package. But I would definitely say the Waves Classic, the Trident, and the Sound Toys stuff are in almost all my mixes. Okay. Um, so do you have like a certain philosophy behind recording, mixing? Well, with recording, uh, it's basically get it clean, know what the end product is going to be. Like generally I'll talk to the artist and the producer to find out through them playing me songs or music, what they're shooting for. 
and then I'll send I'll set my microphones and my paths up to uh, basically try to get as close as I can during the tracking phase. And I also never use any EQ or compression recording or in the monitoring chain because I want to know what I have is good in the box, untreated mm -hmm. and raw. Microphone, preamp, A to D converter. I mean, that's basically how I work. If you could give a piece of advice to uh, a future audio engineer just starting out, what would it be? Don't overthink and don't pop a plug-in in unless you know exactly what you want to do. I, I see people and it's like they're stacked. They're parallel compressing. They, they have multiple buses from their drums and keyboards and all this stuff. And they make things so complicated that anytime they go in to do something, there's a problem. If you have a drum bus and your drum bus has a compressor on it and you're already up to the brick wall and you want more snare, what do you do? You yeah. have to lower <laughs> everything else. Now the, now the compressor is going to act differently because it has different program material. Your threshold is different. The way it reacts is different. So um, I'm not a... I'm not a, I'm a keep it simple, stupid kind of person. The more things that you think you're trying to do being smart, the more they can really bite you in the end, you know? Yeah. So uh, is there anything that you'd like to add? Only that when you're mixing, it, I mean, it's a suspension of belief because of the re, I mean, different reverbs on things and everything else. But I mean, you you need a, a, a real creative vision to mix. And, and some people are ca very capable of it and some aren't. And uh, what, what I basically, when I, when I taught, and I mentioned this 30 years ago to uh, Don Palouse, who was the, uh, was the dean of Berklee School of Music, they would have these contests where the best mix was picked by their graduate with their students. And I said, Manet or Monet, what's a good mix? You know, to me, empirical values are important. So I, I told Don, I said, if you give somebody raw tracks and you give them a two-track mix and you go match the raw tracks to the two-track mix, you have to know EQ, compression, stereo placement, reverb, delay. Whenever I taught personal instruction, that was the first thing I did to see where people needed help. Hmm. Here are the raw files. Here is the finished mix. Get as close as you can. You know, so that's one of the things that I do. And, um, and, and, I, and I share some of the tricks that I learned, you know, while tracking, you know, while, while working in the studio. You know, some of the little things that, that, that we did at Sigma that I modified a little that really enhanced stuff. Cool. Um, where, where can people find you online? MikeTarsiaRecording.com. Mike Tarsia Recording on Facebook are the two places I'm located right now. And on YouTube, uh, Mike Tarsia Recording also. I have some uh, uh, drum miking tutorials on there and pictures of the studio and artists that, you know, through the Sigma's 35-plus year history uh, that we took. Cool, man. Yeah, if you send me uh, some links also, I will put those in the show notes. Cool. And cool. Uh, yeah, hey, thanks for coming on and talking to me today. It was very nice to meet you. Likewise. All right, have a good rest of your day. All right, you take care now. 
Thanks for listening. I really hope that you got something out of it. Check back on the first of each month for new episodes.